I want to begin this morning by reading from Kent Hughes's commentary on 2 Corinthians, the book that we're studying this summer, or this, this where we are, we're in the fall, winter's coming, but he opens his chapter uh, writing about the passage that we'll study today with this. On a notable Sunday morning in 1866, the famous Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon, shocked his 5,000 listeners when from the pulpit of London's Metropolitan Tabernacle, he announced, I am the subject of depressions of spirit, so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. For some of his audience, it was incomprehensible that the world's greatest preacher could know the valley of despair. Yet it was a regular part of his life because 21 years later, in 1887, he said from the same pulpit, personally, I've often passed through this dark valley. John Henry Jowett, the renowned pastor of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City, later Westminster Chapel in London, wrote to a friend in 1920, you seem to imagine I have no ups and downs, but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity. By no means. I am often perfectly wretched and everything appears most murky. Writing of Alexander White, perhaps Scotland's greatest preacher since John Knox, G.F. Barber said, resolute as was Dr. White's character, he had seasons of deep depression regarding the results of his work in the pulpit and among his people. Martin Luther was subject to such fits of darkness that he would hide himself away for days and his family would remove all dangerous implements from the house for fear that he would harm himself. In the midst of one of those times, his indomitable wife, Katerina, entered his room dressed in mourning clothes. Startled, Luther asked who had died. She replied that no one had, but from the way he was acting, she thought God had died. <laughs> the reality is that even mature believers sometimes struggle with depression, with despair. And that describes the Apostle Paul in the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you would open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1229, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to just read the chapter and you follow along, and then we'll go back and take a deeper look. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to start reading at verse 2. Paul writes to these believers, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. 
As he told us, if you're longing, you're mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comforted, comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. In verse 6, Paul says that he was downcast. The word is also translated and used in the New American Standard Bible version, uses the word depressed. This great apostle, evangelist, church planter extraordinaire was in despair, downcast. Because he says in verse 5, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Wow, isn't it kind of nice to know that Paul was human? You know, we look at his life and we sit back and we say, unbelievable, but he's human. I want to go back and just review the situation that leads us to this point of Paul in despair. It begins with his second missionary journey, recorded in Acts 15 to 18. Uh, it's a time period that takes place somewhere between 59, or I mean 49 and 51 A.D. Uh, it's about the second half of A.D. 50 when Paul comes to Corinth, and he begins the church there. He starts doing evangelism, and the church is put together. And then he spends 18 months with them living with them, uh, teaching them, discipling them. He works as a tent maker so that he doesn't have to become a financial burden on the church. Leaving Corinth, he sails to the city of Ephesus across the Aegean Sea. He spends just a little bit of time there, and then he sails for Caesarea, and then he goes on to Jerusalem. About 52 A.D., he departs on his third missionary journey. He, he begins his journey from Antioch in Syria, and then he makes his way first to Ephesus, as you can see there, and he spends three years in Ephesus. During his last year there, he writes the letter of what we call 1 Corinthians, 
and sends it on to the church. He tells them that it's his intent that he's going to come and spend the winter with them. But he becomes aware more and more of this festering problem that he addressed in his letter that he sent to them. And he realizes that he can't wait. And so he sails over to, uh, over to Corinth. And he runs into this buzzsaw of rejection and opposition. Probably led by the one that he has brought discipline on in his letter. Uh, when he goes back to Ephesus, he sits down and he writes this strong letter. Paul calls it the sorrowful letter. By the way, we don't have any extant copies of that letter today. We sort of have to see and read between the lines in 2 Corinthians to see what's going on there. But he writes this very harsh letter to them, and he sends it by the hand of Titus. Titus is given the mission of going and settling this disciplinarian issue in Corinth, of trying to resolve this outstanding conflict between Paul and those who oppose him, and to collect the monetary gift that the church had committed themselves to to help assist the saints, mainly Jewish saints, in Jerusalem who are experiencing the famine. Then Paul and Titus plan to meet up together in the city of Troas. But when Paul gets there, Titus isn't there. And as he waits for Titus, Paul becomes very worried and agitated about the situation in Corinth. He's concerned about their response to this very painful letter that he sent them, uh, and particularly when Titus hasn't returned. Uh, look what Paul writes earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul leaves Troas. He begins to make his way now over, maybe around Philippi, Thessalonica. But somewhere en route to Corinth, Titus shows up. And there's, there's this amazing reunion together. You kind of get the feel when you read 2 Corinthians. It's kind of stop and go, stop and go. And a lot of scholars believe that, remember, he's not writing on pages like what we have today. He's writing on a scroll. He would write for a while and then there was a pause and something would happen and then he would begin to write again. And that's kind of the feel you get of, of this developing situation in this letter. But his emotional state of mind turns from despair to delight as Titus gives him a report from the church in Corinth. I mean, their change in perspective and attitude towards Paul has Paul reiterating the place that they have in his heart. And so he says, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. He shares his thoughts about the difficult and painful letter that he'd had to send to them. Kind of caught between regret and necessity. It's with regret that he just had to hammer them and give them a scathing rebuke on how they opposed him in his ministry and his apostolic authority. But he had no other choice. And what we have to see is Paul's heart behind the letter. He was driven to do what he did because he desired and longed for them to be reconciled to God and reconciled to him. I mean, his desire was that their lives would be characterized by obedience in response to the grace of salvation 
that they'd received from God. And so he writes this letter because he so longs for them to be in a right relationship with God. Commenting on Paul's attitude toward the Corinthians, James Denny in his commentary published in 1900 writes, Paul not only tells the truth about them, as Titus has seen, but he always told the truth to them. Sometimes we hesitate to say what needs to be said because we don't want to upset anybody. We don't want to hurt them. But in our hesitation, we're really doing a disservice to them if we really want the best for them. I always want you to think if you had kids, you know, we, we discipline our children. It's not pleasant. Yeah? It's not enjoyable. But if you think about it, it is the response of genuine love, desiring the best for them. When our children are growing up, our role is not to try to be their best friend. It is to be a loving parent who wants to guide them that they would learn what is right and what is true and what is good. And that sometimes means discipline. And Paul says, that's why I had to write this difficult letter to you. Titus comes back with this great report, such an encouraging report. And part of the report is how the believers at Corinth have received and encouraged Titus. And so Paul in verse 13 tells them that he's aware that they've refreshed the spirit of Titus. Now I want you to think about Titus for just a moment here. Paul gives them some very difficult and unpleasant tasks to do. First, he's to carry this harsh letter to them. Good job, huh? He, he's the one carrying the hammer uh, along the way. And, and, and then he has to deliver this letter to these disgruntled believers. You know, what's the old adage? Don't like the message? Kill the messenger. I don't think Timothy probably thought this was going to be fun. Um, and then Titus was supposed to straighten out things. It probably included making sure that the offending brother we read about in 1 Corinthians 5 was cast out of the church, treated as an unbeliever. Um, some other strong actions that he had to take against those that were opposing Paul and, and fighting against Paul. Um, and then he's supposed to pick up this collection of money from the church to go to Jerusalem. How would you have liked that assignment? I think I could have taken a pass on that one. I suspect that Titus expected the worst. And maybe things didn't go too good at the start. We really don't know. That's just not in the text. But what is evident is that God was at work. And God used this painful letter to bring about godly sorrow and godly repentance. And it restored affection for the apostle. I want you to think for a moment about this response which led to repentance. Look back at the text at verse 8. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And there's Paul distinguishes between a worldly grief 
and a godly grief. Simon Kistemaker writes, grief that originates from awareness of sin leads to genuine repentance. And repentance alters one's will, intellect, and emotions. Repentance turns one away from evil and toward God. It involves asking God for remission of sins. And I think what's happening is that the Corinthians getting this letter realized that their sin wasn't just against Paul. It was a sin against God, of which Paul was an apostle. That's the perspective that King David had when Nathan the prophet confronted him over a sin of adultery and then murder and cover-up. And so David writes in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That is a perspective-altering thought for us. That here is David, he commits adultery, takes what is not his, he tries to cover it up, he has Bathsheba's husband murdered, and it's a year later that the prophet comes back to him. Surely he sinned against Uriah, Certainly sinned against Bathsheba, and yet he understood at the heart of it is a theological thing that he had sinned against God. So when God is at work in our hearts and he brings conviction of sin, the desired outcome is a godly sorrow and repentance. Um, listen to what Scott Haifman writes in his commentary here on 2 Corinthians. He says, repentance includes both the remorse that comes from recognizing that one is wrong to God and his consequent resolve to reverse one's behavior as seen in the first steps in that new direction. Therefore, though its consequences are long-term, repentance is indicated by an initial change in both attitude and action. So Paul says that godly sorrow, godly grief, always leads to repentance, which leads to a change in attitude and action. If it doesn't, it's an indication of what Paul calls worldly grief. You know, there, there, there is a grief which is mostly sorry, being sorry for being caught, right? For the unpleasant consequences of what one has done. You know where we see it in our culture today? We see it in the pseudo-apologies that are made in public, right? If I've offended anyone, I'm sorry. I gag on that every time I hear that in the public arena. No, you're not sorry for what you did. You're not sorry for what you said. You're sorry you got caught. You're sorry that anyone dared to take offense. You're sorry because it might reflect poorly upon you and it might be embarrassing to you, right? You can read the falseness in that statement wherever it comes out. You know, it's like, well, if I didn't offend you, then I'm not sorry for having done that. You know, there's a good example of a contrast between worldly sorrow, godly sorrow, both in the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Testament, think of the difference between Esau, who sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, and think of King David. 
We read about Esau in Hebrews 12, where it says, Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. On the other hand, you have David, who after being confronted with his sin, was deeply remorseful. This was a great, great illustration of, of repentance towards God. So he says to God in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Go to the New Testament. Look at the difference between Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and Peter, who denied Jesus. Both of them had tears of remorse. One was remorse that was worldly, that leads to death. The other one was a remorse that was godly, that led to life. One led to a change, and the other one simply was sorry for what he had done. So here's the question I have to leave you with out of this part today. How do you respond when God brings conviction to your heart and your mind, conviction of sin, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you if you belong to Christ? Is it simply remorse, sorrow in the sense that you, you did wrong? Or is it a remorse born out of a knowledge of offending a holy God? A remorse that then leads to repentance, to a change in attitude and action. It isn't, it isn't chiefly an emotional response. I grew up kind of learning in my church situation that, that repentance was kind of getting down on your knees and crying and begging God for forgiveness. That's not repentance. Repentance simply means to turn around. You're, you're going this way. You know that it's wrong. God shows you it's wrong. You turn around and you, go, you leave that. And that's what repentance is. It may be emotional, but it may not be. It is simply a, a choice that we make that we turn away from that sin. We turn back to God. It's repentance and it's faith. That's what repentance is. Now, there's one other thing I want you to see in the passage before we leave it this morning, and that is this repetition of joy. I don't know if you noticed when we were reading it, but six times in this chapter, Paul uses the word either joy or rejoice. Isn't that amazing? In this, in this passage, the, what it's dealing with, and yet Paul keeps coming back to joy, 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 joy. He reflects on all these things, the harsh treatment by the Corinthian believers, their opposition to him, the painful letter that he writes. And then Titus's news that the people in the church have repented and they've turned away from their sin and they once again have turned and are embracing Paul and showing affection for him. And Paul rejoices from despair to delight. There, there's the joy of reconciliation. The, the believers in Corinth being reconciled to God, reconciled to him. There's joy in Titus, in him carrying out the mission that God had given him to do and that Paul had commissioned him to do. There's joy in the gracious acceptance of the Corinthians now of the apostle. No more do they stand opposed to him, but now they want to accept him. They want to embrace him. They want to obey him. In treating him in that manner, they have affirmed Paul's greatest hopes and prayers for these believers. Even in the manner that they received and embraced Titus, his messenger, it reflects back now on their love and their affection for the apostle. When we see God at work in the lives of others, 
it should produce in us joy, rejoicing. Virtually every week, when we as a staff meet and we pray for the needs of this church as we know it, we thank God for how he's at work with you and in you. You know, what a joyful privilege it is for us as staff to serve him by serving you and being a part of this body and being a blessing to you. But most of all, we thank God for being at work in your life and, and molding you into the image of Christ, even in the midst, for some of you, of very difficult circumstances. And we're aware of those, and we pray for you during those. But God is faithful and you are persevering in your faith and you are illustrating to others what it is to hang in there, knowing the promise that God is with you. And so that's what we want to encourage you with because we know God's at work. That brought great joy to Paul when he saw what God was doing in the lives of these believers in Corinth. And it's that same response that we have toward you when we see God at work with you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that even in difficult times, we have to, by faith, believe that you're working. We were reminded of that this morning with the persecuted church, that God, that you are at work, even if we can't see it, but we're going to trust you. And with those in our church family, Lord, that are going through difficult times, health issues and, and other things, families uh, that are dealing with such difficult things relationships that people are struggling with. Yet, Lord, we believe that you're at work. Your Holy Spirit is ever working, we're reminded in Scripture. And we thank you and we rejoice with you that you're doing that. Would you bring to each person today that assurance and the comfort and encouragement to know that you're a God at work? We thank you for this passage of Scripture to see that you indeed can work even in very difficult situations and a situation that just was not going the right direction. And yet, Lord, you used even a painful letter to break through people's sin and to bring about a real godly grief. So, Lord, would you do the same in us? Would you help us respond to the gracious salvation we have by turning to you and trusting in you? And would you be at work in us? And then, in return, Lord, would you work through us this week? May we be instruments of blessing to other people in a kind word, in a kind act, whatever it might be that you have for us. Would we be open and sensitive to being used by you? And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.